0: Chapter 8 The Renaissance in the North. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Book of Art for Young People by Agnes Ethel Conway and Sir Martin Conway. The painting discussed in this chapter is the portrait of Edward, Prince of Wales, afterwards Edward the Sixth, by Hans Holbein. CHAPTER Eight, THE RENAISSANCE IN THE NORTH The Renaissance involved a change of outlook towards the whole world, which could not long remain confined to Italy. There were then, as now, roads over the passes of the Alps, by which merchants and scholars were continually travelling, from Italy through Germany and Flanders, to England, communicating to the northern countries whatever changes of thought stirred in the south. In Germany, as in Italy, men speedily awoke to the new life, but the awakening took a different form. We find a different quality in the art of the North. Italian spontaneity and childlike joy is absent, so too the sense of physical beauty, universal in Italy. You remember how the successors of the van Eycks in Flanders painted excellent portraits, and small, carefully studied pictures, of scriptural events in wonderful detail. They were a strictly practical people whose painting of stuffs, furs, jewellery, and architecture was marvellously minute and voracious. But they were not a handsome race, and their models for saints and virgins seem to have been the people that came handiest, and by no means the best-looking. Thus the figures in their pictures lack personal charm, though the painting is usually full of vigour, truth, and skill. When Flemings began to make tours in Italy, and saw the pictures of Raphael, in whom Grace was native, they fell in love with his work, and returned to Flanders to try and paint as he did. But to them Grace was not God-given, and in their attempt to achieve it their pictures became sentimental and postured, and the naive simplicity and everyday truth so attractive in the works of the earlier school, perished. The influence of the Van Eycks had not been confined to Flanders. Artists in Germany had been profoundly affected. They learnt the new technique of painting from the pupils of the Van Eycks in the 15th century. Like them, too, they discarded gold backgrounds, and tried to paint men and women as they really looked, instead of in the old conventional fashion of the Middle Ages. Schools of painting grew up in several of the more important German towns, till towards the end of the 15th century two German artists were born, Albert Dürer at Nuremberg in 1471 and Hans Holbein the Younger at Augsburg in 1497, who deserved to rank with the greatest painters of the time in any country. Dürer is commonly regarded as the most typically German of artists though his father was Hungarian, and, as a matter of fact, he stands very much alone. His pictures and engravings are long, long thoughts. Every inch of the surface is weighted with meaning. His cast of mind, indeed, was more that of a philosopher than that of an artist. In a drawing which Dürer made of himself in the looking-glass at the age of thirteen, we see a thoughtful little face gazing out upon the world with questioning eyes. Already the delicacy of the lines is striking, and the hair so beautifully finished, that we can anticipate the later artist whose pictures are remarkable for so surprising a wealth of detail. The characteristics of the Flemish school, carefulness of workmanship, and indifference to the physical beauty of the model, to which the Italians were so sensitive, continued in his work. For thoroughness his portraits can be compared with those of John van Eyck. In the National Gallery his father lives again for us, in a picture of wonderful power and insight. Dürer was akin to Leonardo in the desire for more and yet more knowledge. Like him he wrote treatises on fortifications, human proportions, geometry, and perspective, and filled his sketch-books with studies of plants, animals, and natural scenery. His eager mind employed itself with the whys and wherefores of things— "'not satisfied with the simple pleasure that sight bestows. "'In his engravings, even more than in his pictures, "'we ponder the hidden meanings. "'We are not content to look and rejoice in beauty, "'though there is much to charm the eye. "'His problems were the problems of life "'as well as the problems of art. "'The other great artist of Germany, Hans Holbein the Younger, "'was the son of Hans Holbein the Elder,' a much-esteemed painter, in Augsburg. This town was on the principal trade route between northern Italy and the North Sea, so that Venetians and Milanese were constantly passing through, and bringing to it much wealth and news of the luxury of their own southern life. As a result, the citizens of Augsburg dressed more expensively, and decorated their houses more lavishly than did the citizens of any other town in Germany. After a boyhood and youth spent at Augsburg, Holbein removed to Basel. He was a designer of wood engravings, and goldsmith's work, and of architectural decoration, besides being a painter. In those days of change in South Germany, artists had to be willing to turn their hands to any kind of work they could get to do. North of the Alps, where the Reformation was upsetting old habits, an artist's life was far from being easy— Reformers made bonfires of sacred pictures, and sculptured wooden altarpieces. Indeed, the Reformation was a cruel blow to artists, for it took away church patronage, and made them dependent for employment upon merchants and princes. Except at courts, or in great mercantile towns, they fared extremely ill. Altarpieces were rarely wanted, and there were no more legends of saints to be painted upon the walls of churches." The demand for portraiture, on the other hand, was increasing, whilst the growth of printing created a new field for design in the preparation of woodcuts for the illustration of books. Thus it came to pass that the printer Froben, at Basel, was one of the young Holbein's chief patrons. We find him designing a wonderful series of illustrations of The Dance of Death, as well as drawing another set to illustrate The Praise of Folly, written by Erasmus, who was then living in Basel, and frequenting the house of Froben. Erasmus was a typical scholar of the sixteenth century, belonging rather to civilized society as a whole than to any one country. He moved about Europe from one centre of learning to another, alike at home in educated circles in England, Flanders, and Germany. He had lived for some time in England, and knew that there were men there with wealth who would employ a good painter to paint their portraits, if they could find one. Erasmus himself sat to Holbein, and sent the finished portrait as a present to his friend Sir Thomas More, Lord Chancellor of England. In England, owing to the effects of the Wars of the Roses, good painters no longer existed. A century of neglect had destroyed English painting." Henry VIII, therefore, had to look to foreign lands for his court painter, and where was he to come from? France was the nearest country, but the French king was in the same predicament as Henry. He obtained his painters from Italy, and at one time secured the services of Leonardo da Vinci, but Italy was a long way off, and it would suit Henry better to get a painter from Flanders, or Germany, if it were possible. So Erasmus advised Holbein to go to England, and gave him a letter to Sir Thomas More. On this first visit in 1526 he painted the portraits of More and his whole family, and of many other distinguished men, but it was not till his second visit in 1532 that he became Henry VIII's court painter. In this capacity he had to decorate the walls of the king's palaces, design the pageantry of the royal processions, and paint the portraits of the king's family. Although Holbein could do, and did do, anything that was demanded of him, what he liked best was to paint portraits. Romantic subjects, such as the fight of St. George and the Dragon, or an idol of the Golden Age, little suited the artistic leanings of a German. To a German or a Fleming, the world of facts— meant more than the world of imagination. The painting of men and women as they looked in everyday life was more congenial to them than the painting of saints and imaginary princesses. But how unimportant seems all talk of contrasting imagination and reality when we see them fused together in this charming portrait of Edward, the child prince of Wales. It belongs to the end of the year 1538, when he was just fifteen months old, and the imagination of Holbein equipped him with the orb of sovereignty in the guise of a baby's rattle. It is in the coupling of distant kingship and present babyhood that the painter works his magic, and reveals his charm. If you recall for a moment what you know of Henry the Eighth, his masterful pride, his magnificence, his determination to do and have exactly what he wanted, you will understand that his demands upon his court painter for a portrait of his only son and heir must have been high. No one could say enough about this wonderful child to please Henry, for all that was said in praise of him redounded to the glory of his father. The following is a translation of the Latin poem beneath the picture. Child, of thy father's virtues be thou heir, since none on earth with him may well compare. Hardly to him might heaven yield a son by whom his father's fame should be outdone. So, if thou equal such a mighty sire, no higher can the hopes of man aspire. If thou surpass him, thou shalt honored be, or all that ruled before, or shall rule after thee. In justice be it said that the little Edward the sixth was of an extraordinary precocity. When he was eight years old he wrote to Archbishop Cranmer in Latin. When he was nine he knew four books of Cato by heart, as well as much of the Bible. To show you the way in which royal infants were treated in those days, we read that at the time this picture was painted, the little prince had a household of his own, consisting of a lady-mistress, a nurse, rockers for his cradle, a chamberlain, vice-chamberlain, steward, comptroller, almoner, and dean— It is hard to believe that the child is only fifteen months old, so erect is the attitude, so intelligent the face. The clothes are sumptuous. A piece of stuff similar in material and design to the sleeve exists to-day in a museum in Brussels. In the best sense Holbein was the most Italian of the Germans, for in him, as in the gifted Italian, grace was innate. He may have paid a brief visit to Italy, but he never lived there for any length of time, nor did he try to paint like an Italian, as some northern artists unhappily tried to do. The German merits—solidity, boldness, detailed finish, and grasp of character—he possessed in a high degree. But he combined them with a beauty of line, delicacy of modelling, and richness of colour almost southern— His pictures appeal more to the eye and less to the mind than do those of Durer. Where Durer sought to instruct, Holbein was content to please. But like a German, he spared no pains. He painted the stuff and the necklace, the globe and the feather, with the finish of an artist who was before all things a good workman. Observe how delicately the chubby little fingers are drawn. Holbein's detailed treatment of the accessories of a portrait is only less than the care expended in depicting the face. He studied faces, and his portraits, one may almost say, are at once images of, and commentaries on, the people they depict. Thus his gallery of pictures of Henry and his contemporaries show us at once the reflection of them as in a mirror, and the vision of them as beheld by a singularly discerning and experienced eye, that not only saw, but comprehended. This is the more remarkable, because Holbein was not always able to paint and finish his portraits in the presence of the living model, as painters insist on doing nowadays. His sitters were generally busy men who granted him but one sitting, so that his method was to make a drawing of the head in red chalk, and to write upon the margin notes of anything he particularly wanted to remember. Afterwards he painted the head from the drawing, but had the actual clothes and jewels sent to him to work from. In the Royal Collection at Windsor there are a number of these portrait drawings of great interest to us, since many of the portraits painted from them have been lost. As a record of remarkable people of that day they are invaluable, for in a few powerful strokes Holbein could set down the likeness of any face." that when he came to paint the portrait he was not satisfied with a mere likeness. He painted, too, his habit as he lived. Erasmus is shown reading in his study, the merchant in his office, surrounded by the tokens of his business, and Henry the Eighth standing firmly with his legs wide apart, as if bestriding a hemisphere. But I think that you will like this fine portrait of the infant prince best of all, And that is why I have chosen it in preference to a likeness of any of the statesmen, scholars, queens, and courtiers who played a great part in their world, but are not half so charming to look upon as little Prince Edward. End of chapter eight. Read by Kara Schallenberg on April twenty first, two thousand eight, in San Diego, California.